0: Today is February 16th, 2010, and my guest is Garrett Jones of George Mason University. Garrett, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. So, Garrett, what we're going to talk about today, and those of you out there in the in the listening audience, uh, I want to introduce you to Garrett and his uh, background, which is quite interesting, and a little bit of his research. But then we're going to turn to his efforts on Twitter uh, and economic education. So uh, this is – although Garrett's a, a macroeconomist twitter is uh, micro macroeconomics you're, you're limited to 140 characters and Garrett has set himself the challenge of of tweeting on some pretty deep issues many of which draw on his background which is why we're going to talk about that for a little bit and using those tweets as a form of uh, both entertainment and economic education so To get us started, Garrett, tell us uh, us a little about your career path
1: and how you got to George Mason. It's a little bit unusual. Sure. Well, um, I got my undergraduate degree in history at Brigham Young University. I minored in sociology. I thought those were good ways to learn about how societies work. But um, in both history and social, I noticed that the most interesting explanations of why the world is the way it is came from economic ideas, So uh, we read some of uh, Fogel's work on the economics of slavery. Uh, I read a lot of Rodney Stark's work on the economics of religion and sociology. And together, that just got me thinking, wow, every time people in the social sciences are raising puzzles, more than half the time the best explanations are coming out of econ.
0: George Stigler said, there's only one social science and we are its practitioners. I've I've gotten a little bit more open-minded as I've gotten older, but it
1: does have a lot to say about social science. Yeah, so um, eventually I um, decided to try to get a PhD in political science. I, um, that was my first stab at um, a graduate degree. Um, How'd that go? Um, it was, I took all of the fun classes in one year. <laughs> I, I learned a lot of great stuff from people who were at the top of their fields, but even while I was there, I, uh, I tried to focus on political economy type models and learn a little bit of economic history there, but ultimately I realized, you know, econ's the way to go here, and so I had to take a year off and take all the math classes, and you know, then I'd be ready to get an econ PhD. So during that, that year off, after I took all the math classes, that's when I had my first real lengthy internship in Washington, D.C. I was just a lowly intern um, for Senator Orrin Hatch of Utah. I worked on a tax policy for him, You know, doing the things that interns are supposed to do. Uh, Mostly making copies and licking envelopes, right? A lot of that. Yeah. But um, the surprising thing, the advice I always give to interns is, Always be willing to take more work because especially on Capitol Hill, there's always more work to do. Yeah. And so by, uh, by telling people, hey, I'm around, hey, I can do a little more, I eventually got to the point of being able to draft short speeches, um, an op-ed, um, things like that. Fun. So, um, so then I went off and got my PhD in economics at UC San Diego, which has a reputation as being a very mathematical yep. department, very, very rigorous. Formal. I was trying to get away from all the years of squishiness. Um, and so I think somehow since then I found a, a balance between the two. So I went off to my first academic job after writing a dissertation that um, the job market wasn't super excited about. It was <laughs> on was how, uh, It was on how the um, Federal Reserve controls interest rates on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Um, part of the dissertation was actually about intraday v- changes in the Fed funds rate. Um, it was fun because it gave me a chance to think about natural experiments, which are so common now in microeconomics. I got to use it in macroeconomics because with the help of my advisor, Jim Hamilton, I was able to find... Um, Ways and times when the Fed would accidentally res- add in a billion dollars too much or accidentally take out a billion dollars too much um, it 's very hard for them to to tell how much to put in or take out of the economy because other branches of the government are taking in and putting out money so quickly That gave me a nice natural experiment, so it got me thinking about macro in micro terms using natural experiments the market didn 't like my paper, so I, I I toiled away in academia for a couple of years and then after the um, toil is a bit of a strong word. Uh, yes, exactly. Not really toil, but no, yeah, I know what you mean. Yes. yeah. So um, uh, a, a few weeks after nine eleven, um, I received a phone call from um, somebody in Senator Hatch's office, and he said uh, the senator decided he wanted to have a PhD economist on staff, um, and um, we remembered you. So fortunately, my name is spelled just a little bit unusually, so I was very easy to find through Google. <laughs> And uh, that's how they got a hold of me at my position at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. Uh
0: Uh-huh.
1: And, um... So uh, how long did you do that for? I I left academia for uh, 15 months, you know, Uh a a year, academic year and two summers. And I worked on... I was economic policy advisor to Orrin Hatch and uh, worked on a lot of tax issues with the help of a colleague who focused more on tax. Worked on labor issues. So I got to see how um, wages and hours legislation really get enforced in the real world. Um... And uh, it was a fascinating time. It was the year of the 2003 tax cuts when tax rates on dividends and capital gains were cut Um, and when uh, a lot of the Bush rate cuts were sped up. They were supposed to be phased in slowly over many years and they were all sped up. So I got to watch how the uh, sausage got made on that issue and on some international tax reform issues. Then you went back to academic life. Went back to academic life and it was a real awakening because during my time in the Senate I decided... um, this was pretty fun, um, but not as fun as the free thought of academia. Um, and so I thought, if I'm going to go back to academia, I better go work on something that's incredibly exciting. Um, otherwise, I might as well just stay on Capitol Hill and uh, cash in in a couple of years as a, as a lobbyist. Um, so uh, uh, don't do that. Okay, go ahead. Okay, Good choice. <laughs> so I decided not to do that. So I, it was it was all about thinking about what the opportunity cost was. Once I saw my life, once I saw what Senate life could be like, I thought I'm going to need to find an academic life that's better than that. And so I decided to come back and work on some things that were exciting, which was um, economic growth, trying to explain why some countries are so much richer than others.
0: Now uh, I want to. I know you're working on a book and on economic growth, and in particular the relationship between IQ and economic growth. Yes. So. I want to come back down the road when that book comes out. We'll do a podcast on that. But for here, I want to stick with the topic of what you're doing at Twitter, on Twitter, and how your Senate experience, ironically, you might call it a real world experience, right? Compared to academic life, it's real world, right? But there might be a hard to identify a more surreal place than Capitol Hill. Exactly. So so it's two unreal places, I guess, academic life and Congress. So what I want to talk about is um, – first, let's talk about Twitter for a moment in the abstract. Then we'll talk about your work there in particular. As I've told you, uh, the listening audience out there occasionally, I'm on Twitter now as Econ Talker. And I use it to – what I find myself doing with Twitter – is stuff related to econ talk, so I might have a guest coming up where I'll say, do you have suggested questions, or just to let people know the guest is coming up. But I also use it for short blogging is what I found myself doing. I do not do a lot of the I'm having a pizza right now kind of posts, but many people do, and it's an interesting form of social communication. Um, in a podcast with Tyler Cowen, we talked about how uh, I think older folks tend to look down on Twitter as some sort of mindless self-indulgence, but it's a form of communication to people that is what is the way many people communicate in a modern way. If you don't Twitter on your cell phone and you only do it on on the web as I do, only do it on the web, it's, it's just a short form of blogging. If you're using your cell phone, which is I think what the majority of Twitters are doing, it's a way to stay in touch with people on a very quick, short-time basis like texting. If you don't know about Twitter, it's limited to 140 characters. That includes spaces. Uh, A lot of abbreviations are used but I find uh, Twitter somewhat like haiku in that uh, there's a certain eloquence that arises from the constraint of the 140 characters and that's what I see you've been doing lately. So talk about what you've been trying to do and then we'll talk about some of the actual uh, tweets and uh, in particular how it relates to your Senate experience and public choice.
1: Sure. Um, you know, I find that when I read books, or even now when I read blogs, it's common for me to just find these these great little nuggets of thought, these short quotes. I mean, there are whole books that just contain quotes, Bartlett's familiar quotations. I'm guessing more than half of the things in that in Bartlett's familiar quotations are one hundred and forty characters or less. So the ideas that we often look back on after we've read a book, after we've read an article, as the best parts, the parts we really want to you know share with others or repeat to somebody, or use as the preface, part of the preface to a book. Those are often in that 140-character range. So I, I, um, a lot of economics is just distilling um, things to their essence. Um, and so Twitter is just a, just another example of that. You know, Part of this I, I saw in political science where you, you sit there in this political science class and they tell you, okay, this week we're going to read this 1,000-page book, and then we're going to come and sit down and talk about it next week. And ultimately you read this 1,000-page book, and what did you pull out of it? Um, maybe something a little bit more than 140 characters, <laughs> but not too much more. So yeah, in academic uh. economics, in academic economics, um, in academic economics um, you know, we often write these thirty-page articles that can say as much or more than many thousand-page books. So, Twitter just gives me a chance or to – or less, or less, yeah, <laughs> you know, usually less. In, <laughs> most articles in academia in any field are, you know, deserve to go in the garbage bin and not be read again. But those core, the ones we treasure, um, often have a core insight. So Twitter gets me to basically just focus on what the big idea is and to strip away everything else. Yeah, it just – it brings to mind an article I've mentioned many times here before, The Use of
0: Knowledge Society of Hayek. It's a short article. And I'm going to guess it's 15 pages. Yes. Many of us have read it many times and we'd still profit from reading it again.
1: So worth rereading, yes.
0: So uh, we hope – In and in this is the, uh, the heyday of the, – the, the most we could ask for from Twitter would be a, a, a tweet – that would uh, be so provocative that you would mull it over many times, right? Uh, it, would, it would capture something distilled, as you say.
1: Um, so tell us. What are some of them? Well, um, one that I had just a couple of days ago that um, my And by the way, I'm oh, sorry to interrupt. Oh, sure.
0: um, you can find Garrett at, on Twitter at Garrett Jones. One word, correct? Mm-hmm. One word. G-A-R-1-R-G-A-R-E-T-T. Jones, when he said earlier his name's spelled in an unusual way, Jones is, is a pretty common name, and I bet there's a lot of Garrett Joneses even. Garrett's yes, not, a, not a common first name, but it's common enough, mm-hmm. but the one R makes it uh, distinctive.
1: Yeah, there's a player for the Pittsburgh Pirates now who's Garrett Jones, so I'm sure he finds me on uh, when he does Google searches of himself all the time now. Lucky guy. Yes. He's going to he end up knowing a lot of economics. Go ahead. So yeah, one I put up that uh, my colleague Tyler Cowen just linked to uh, the other day was um, that uh, I said... If businesses say that a tax cut doesn't help them, that's an argument for the tax cut. You stop there. Now that's
0: a puzzle. Mm-hmm. And before we got started, we Gary and I were talking about what we wanted to do with this podcast. And he said he tries sometimes when he twitters to to create a puzzle. So that let's think about that for a sec. Wait a minute. If it if it helps, if it doesn't help them, that seems to be an argument against it. Because usually the idea of a tax cut is to get the business to respond. You want a big response, yes. big help. So how could it possibly be that if they say it doesn't help them, that that's an argument for the tax cut? That would seem to be an argument about the impotence of the tax cut and therefore
1: a bad bad argument, so a case against it. So what what are you thinking there? What I'm thinking there is that um, businesses love it when you cut their taxes um, on things that they're already doing. That's what they get really excited about. They want to be told, okay, uh, 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 that I'm going to, you know, okay, we've been selling X number of cars this year. We want to just pay a lower tax rate on all those cars. Um, That'd be great for us. Even if we don't sell us, it doesn't encourage us to do a single additional thing. It would be an enormously profitable tax. Exactly. I I saw a lot of lobbyists coming in um, for uh, different tax issues when I was on the Hill. And um, companies do spend a modest amount on uh, lobbying tax issues. and But a lot of businesses basically just see taxes as a cost to be managed, not really something that's a, a policy choice. Oh, if you cut taxes on us, then we'll, we'll respond this way. If you cut taxes on capital, then we'll do a lot more investment. They just see it as a cost of doing business, just like they negotiate hard to get their rents lowered in, in an office that they're renting. They'd like to negotiate with the government to get their taxes cut uh, for whatever line of business they're currently in.
0: Strangely enough, they're not interested necessarily in making the country better off. They're kind of focused. on It's hard enough no, focusing no, on their exactly. bottom line, yes. staying profitable.
1: So the, um, the kind of tax cuts if that uh, businesses might respond the most to would be ones where um, they really are kind of indifferent between doing one activity versus another. Let me pick an, a simple example that I can just talk about here. Whether a business locates on the right side of a street or the left side of a street. Right. Great example. So very simple choice. Um, we as voters might have a preference. Uh, some city council might decide, well, uh, we'd like to have, the, uh, we'd like to have the, the gas station on the right side of the street, not the left. And so if the government – But if you don't can, like that, we could just turn around. So you, let's call it the east side. Okay. The east side versus <laughs> yeah, the west side? Yeah. Okay. So, so um, you could give a small tax break. It could just be pennies, um, dollars, um, to tell businesses to locate on the east side. Of the city, uh, or at the east side of an intersection, and if you gave them that, they'd do it. Right. It wouldn't change their life very much. Uh, they wouldn't be ridiculously more profitable as a result of this, but it would help accomplish some policy goal that some If that was your goal, and if you want them on the
0: east side, a very yeah. small incentive is necessary to get them to do it, because exactly. for them it's not very important.
1: Yes. So I think there are a lot of um, uh, tax policy changes that get recommended, um, that get bandied about on Capitol Hill that are really just about, um, paying businesses to do what they would have already done anyway. Um, that's the thing that, uh, that, uh, they wanted to have fixed. In some cases, a lot of things that, um, tax lobbyists would come in and ask for would be things that were genuine simplification. The government would just have a lot of crazy rules, uh, that a lot of hoops for businesses to jump through and, and they would come through and say, well, can you simplify this and this and this? We really don't care about whether you cut the cost, just please cut back our paperwork. Um, but, uh, more often, Uh, You saw businesses coming in saying, please help us cut taxes for something we're already doing.
0: So let's talk about this now from a formal standpoint of the classroom, textbook-style economics. We're really talking about what is usually called inframarginal changes versus marginal change, inframarginal being stuff that I'm already doing. It's going to take a massive change in price or the tax rate to get me to do something different, Uh, and marginal being that it's going to affect my behavior. Uh, It's an interesting Example because I think a lot of people get confused about economics because they have trouble keeping these things straight. You know, They'll say things like uh, if we make it less lucrative to be a doctor, then that's not going to change the number of people who want to be doctors because, quote, no one goes into medicine f- to get rich or for the money. They do it because they like <laughs> helping people. Don't laugh, Garrett. It's, that's disrespectful of <laughs> either me, I don't know, maybe, or the, the viewpoint. No, but it is – for an economist, it's hard not to laugh because yeah. – we don't really believe that – we underst- We argue that people go into medicine for, for lots of reasons, um, presumably because they like to help people, presumably because it feels um, satisfying to do so, presumably because it pays very well. And obviously there are many, many people, thousands of doctors who if the wages were cut in half, they might still want to be in medicine. Mm-hmm. But there's millions more who would become lawyers mm-hmm. who are just – willing to be a doctor at the current pay rate and the difficulties of getting your medical school degree and how long it takes you to do it. And so if you make it less lucrative, they're going to go do something else. Mm-hmm. So it's not to say that that people are motivated to be doctors for the mm-hmm. money. It just says that money matters and people respond to incentives. So it's really – as you give – to finish the, the tweet, you talk about flat supply and demand curves. So talk about what flat supply and demand curves – relatively flat – or relatively elast- relatively elastic supply makers curves to be technically more accurate, what they mean for, uh, for these kind of policy changes?
1: Well, yes. Yeah, so um, you, you might remember that uh, a, a flat supply curve means that uh, – Perfectly flat. A perfectly flat supply curve would mean that uh, businesses are just going to supply the amount of output at one particular price. If the price were, rose slightly, there would be an infinite amount supplied. If the price were cut slightly, there would be none supplied. This might be the equivalent of, of whether you uh, open your gas station on the east side versus the west side um, now if it 's just a little bit steep, just a little not just not quite flat, not quite perfectly flat, then what happens is that uh, if the price rises just a little bit, you will get a huge quantity response. People will supply a lot more of that product with just a small rise in price. This might be what happens if you pay people more to be a um, a specialist in medicine, uh, an ear nose and throat specialist versus just being a general practitioner, you pay people a little more, a lot, more people go into that specialty um, so um, the thing is is that if the if the supply curve's really flat, then what that means is there 's not that much what we call producer surplus out there in the market there 's not that much extra value being created that that gets the producer that excited. You remember that the producer surplus is basically the difference between what you'd have to pay a person to be willing to, to produce that, that unit of output versus what they actually get paid. It's a little bit like profit. A relatively
0: flat supply curve means it doesn't take a lot of extra money to draw me or other suppliers into the industry or to get me to expand my output because the cost of me doing it, either the, the actual cost or the alternatives, what I'm giving up by expanding or what I'm giving up by entering this industry are relatively similar to what I'm already doing. And we say in that case that there's no economic – very little economic profit and use the example of producer surplus. Similarly, there'd be very little producer surplus in those industries where my next best alternative was almost as good because if this doesn't work out, I could just bump
1: – I could just go into the – do that that other thing. Yeah. Um, so in yeah, in a setting like that, what's going to happen is that there just isn't going to be a lot of extra value created if the price goes up a little bit. So – Um, The producers are going to produce a lot more of one kind of quantity over another one. They're going to switch over into one market versus another market. But um, it's not going to be the kind of thing that they're going to get that excited about beforehand. They're not going to be in their lobby in Congress for a But the consumer
0: might benefit tremendously because the shape of the demand curve has nothing to do with the shape of the supply curve. And so if if consumers are very eager to get this new product – Relative to the old one. Exactly. Even though it doesn't cost a lot extra for the, old, for the market to supply it, they're going to get a huge bargain. So it's going to be an enormous gain to the consumer from that,
1: from that change, that switchover. Exactly. That's why uh, so much of the production and so much of the innovation that goes on in the modern world is companies that are already in a line of work deciding to just tweak slightly what they're doing in order to create a lot more value for people. I think of the iPad as being an example of this. Everybody made fun of it the day after it came out because they said, hey, it's just a huge iPhone. That's all it is. But then once you think about it, you think, wow, a huge watch, iPhone might be, be really, kind of handy. It might be kind of great, yeah. Yes. Right. So from Apple's point of view, small change. Make something a little bit bigger, a little thinner. From the point of view, the consumer's experience completely different. Right. It might be very different. We'll, yes. s- we'll see, of course. It, remains. No, it we, might be a complete failure. They don't know.
0: And, and We certainly don't know, and they don't know either, which mm-hmm. is interesting in and of itself. Uh, so the idea then would be that if the business is saying, oh, this isn't going to help us very much, it's not going to help our profitability very much, it could be an enormously good thing to encourage or discourage this activity
1: uh, because of its ultimate impact, even though for the business it's very small. Exactly. So the fact that a business is asking for one tax cut over another um, shouldn't really get that much play in our – in our political process, we need to really think through what we think the consequences would be of that. Uh, sometimes, what th- sometimes what's good for General Motors is what's good for the country, and usually sometimes not. it's not. Usually yeah, not. Usually especially, not. I, especially right now. Uh, especially right now, <laughs> is yes. it a,
0: It's an old quote. I think it was, came out. Somebody – I don't know who said it. Do you know who said
1: it? I believe it was it's a – a, a uh, member of Congress, actually. It was, it, it was someone who was being appointed to a position in um, a presidential administration who had helped run General Motors, okay. as I recall. Wikipedia. Oh, will, we'll will we'll solve check that this out. Later. We'll
0: check that out. But uh, it was about fifty or sixty years ago, I think, when that quote was made, and uh, we're in a very different world right now. Yes. People feel very differently about, about
1: GM, I think, than they did. Um, okay, give us another one. Sure. Um, I I pointed out the other day that um, I thought that the way to control congressional spending is to create more earmarks, and it was such a strange idea. Strange idea that yeah. I put the little brackets and I wrote SIC. Uh, sick, which is usually a reminder that no, this is not a typo, and um, there was so hang on let 's
0: set it up so everybody everybody knows earmarks are bad, right? everybody so knows they're earmarks bad. are horrible, everybody's exactly. against earmarks, weird because somehow they're real popular <laughs> so, exactly so but we all, but, but when we step back and they're not my earmark, we all say that's that's a terrible thing we we've got to do something about that, and we've got to get rid of earmarks. Uh, that's – earmarks is the polite way to say it. The unpolite way is pork. Uh, pork is, is destroying our, our budget process. It's driving us into debt. It's horrible. So what, what could
1: possibly be good about earmarks, Garrett? Well, I think uh, one channel that's pretty important is that um, earmarks are one way for party leaders to control individual party members. Um, American politicians are really entrepreneurs. Every person is building their own brand. It's not like in the British system where if you're a member of the Labor Party, you really have to do what the Labor Party says. Um, why, why is that, by the way? Um, do you know? I'm not entirely sure why. But they but do have more party. There's much more party loyalty, loyalty in, in, in the yeah. British system, yes. But in the U.S., it's, this is a common observation that every, every member is his or her own entrepreneur, and they're building their own brand. And it's difficult for parties to get their members to think uh, about the party brand. Now, in some respects, you might think, well, what's so great about party brands? Um, and party brands often do create some trouble. Um, but on the other hand, parties are something that lasts a long time. Parties are a brand. Um, we know in, in the private sector, uh, why, do, why, do some, why do employees of companies uh, pay attention to the company brand reputation? Well, because there's this corporation saying, let's pay attention to, the, to Toyota's reputation. Toyota's creating some bad cars. Um, they've created some trouble. Toyota cares about that name value. Huge, infl- huge impact. Huge impact. So the executives at Toyota have an incentive to sort of take care of the brand. That is the value of the company. An individual worker at Toyota might say, hey, I don't really feel like building safe cars. I, I get paid about the same no matter what. I'm just this anonymous worker. Um, a so, of thing- course,
0: that encourages an incentive for the
1: people who are, have a bigger stake in the brand to, make, to monitor and, and keep people doing the right thing. So the people at the top have an incentive to sort of keep the people at the bottom in line in order to make sure that the brand retains some value over the decades. So IBM's still a pretty good brand in the U.S. Microsoft's an okay brand value. Um, Even uh, Ford has one American car company that has some good brand value to it. Um, Similarly, parties are one part of American politics that lasts for a long time. The Democratic Party brand, the Republican Party brand, these have some value. These values go up and they go down. You can watch watch it in the polls rather than the stock market. But... um, Brand the party brand might be, on average, probably have a longer time horizon, a longer focus on the future than individual politicians would. An individual politician might be in, say, well, I think I'll be in the House for four, six, maybe eight years, then I'll cash in as a lobbyist or go back to maybe trying to run for governor. Um, that might give them a fairly short time horizon if they're just thinking about, I'm going to check in and then check out. Whereas the brand, the party brand, uh, might be focused a bit more on the long run. This is an idea that comes out of Donald Whitman's uh, work, um, the myth of democratic failure. So he says that, uh, yeah, there are market failures in political markets, but party brands are one way, not perfect, but one way to overcome that. And my claim is that uh, earmarks are one way uh, for... The people at the top, the people who manage the party brand, to keep the underlings in line, just as the way the CEO of Toyota is going to try to keep his underlings in line, is bon- with
0: bonuses and other exactly vacations and other things.
1: So I think earmarks are one way to discipline. So how does party that? Members. How might that? How would that work? So uh, I don't know much about earmarks. So um, except so that they're bad. So exactly. <laughs> well, it's it's a way of basically rewarding your friends and punishing your enemies. So earmarks are a way for people at the top. People at the top have some control over earmarks. Um, The majority leader, the uh, Speaker of the House, can tell members of of his or her party, um, I need your vote for this health care bill. I need your vote for this tax cut or tax increase. I need your vote for this. And when the member says, okay, you need my vote, well, what's in it for me? me? And the answer is what's in it for you is a new post office. What's in it for you is a new interchange Um, to replace the old one in your district. What's in it for you is a new four-lane bridge instead of the crummy two-lane one you've got. And you'll get to brag about that back home. So it's a way for, if the people at the top control earmarks to a modest degree, which they seem to, um, then that's a way of controlling the brand. Now, in practice, the funny thing is that in the U.S., both, both parties get some say over earmarks. So the minority gets some say over a pot of money, and they get to use that pot of money to sort of discipline their members on that side as well. So it's surprising how earmarking is a bipartisan game. Well, I'm I'm glad you brought it up because in the last presidential election,
0: um, and maybe you know the numbers better than I do. I don't remember the numbers, but John McCain came out boldly for getting rid of earmarks, I think. And I think in my memory, it was something remarkably – it's a remarkably small amount of money, the amount of earmarks that – in it a, is a tiny in a, in amount in a of money. year, it's it's tens of billions. Exactly, but not not even a hundred billion. It's something like twenty
1: billion. It's in that it, uh, in normal years, it's about in that area. Yes,
0: so it's a drop in the bucket. Exactly. Unfortunately, it's a lot of money. Mm-hmm. You know, as as I like to say, twenty billion as my salary or my stock uh, portfolio is a very large amount of money, or as the mortgage of my house is a large amount of money. In the U.S. budget, we have to admit it's a small amount of money. No, yes. So it's an interesting. So you're suggesting. That it's a way for uh, – it's an incentive system within Congress to get stuff done that otherwise might be harder to get done and that we like to think – we don't know this, of course. We like to think that that maybe would be better than the alternative because some longer-term incentives might be at play there.
1: Yes. Um, I mean at some point, maybe it will be this decade, maybe it will be the next decade, um, Congress is going to wrestle with entitlement spending and uh, – you know the options are pretty clear. There, it's going to be some combination of to solve this long-term entitlement problem. It's going to be some combination of raising taxes, cutting spending, or defaulting on the debt. <laughs> right? Those are your three yeah, that's options. It, pretty much. Default might mean some inflation. It might mean just being a slow payer. But those are the three options. And uh, when that time comes, um, it's going to be parties that are going to cut the deal. So, um, and they haven't they. Both parties would like to be able to say we we help solve a big problem in our society, and they would like to brag about that to the voters. Um, individual members of the party would love to say, "Hey, I, I didn't cut your benefit. I didn't cut your benefit. I didn't cut your benefit." To yep. individual groups of voters, but um, the party as a whole knows It has uh, to be done. Uh, this has to be done, and later than sooner, later rather than sooner. That's the way things uh, usually yeah. work in politics. Uh. And I suspect um, when that day comes, that. Um, Having the ability to discipline members with earmarks, which are so inexpensive. There's such an inexpensive way to buy the votes of politicians. Um, and that will work much better than just about any other method of trying to appeal to their patriotism, for instance. So I think, I think my story, the shortest way to put it, is that earmarks are a much cheaper way of buying the votes of members of Congress than the alternative, which is extra entitlement spending. Yeah. So, if I have a choice between giving a congressman a 2 million dollar post office in his district versus a permanent 2 billion dollar increase for his district in Medicare spending cuz he's got a say a population of older voters. Exactly. It's so much cheaper to buy these folks off with the earmarks than to buy them off with entitlement spending. So,
0: I'm going to digress here for a minute. I want to go off off our or that Particular Twitter. I want to talk about something else that it reminds me of. So John Murtha passed away uh, recently. It's John, right? It's yes. Representative Murtha. And the front page obituary in the Washington Post called him the king of pork uh, and that he was a master at, at getting stuff for his district and his uh, constituents. And our colleague, Don Boudreau, uh, wrote a, a letter to the editor of the Washington Post. I don't know if it got published, but those out there don't know, Don Writes a lot of letters to the editor just for the fun of it uh, as an educational exercise. You can get on his mailing list. Send me an email if you uh, want to get on his mailing list. He writes one a day, sometimes more than one a day. And it's, uh, it's by the way, a similar exercise to what we're talking about here. A letter to the editor is uh, has to be short. So he tries to distill some wisdom into a very short uh, um, mode of, of communication. And he's excellent at it. He's sp- superb. Yeah. So what he said there, which I loved, is um, – It's interesting that if you're you're a congressman, a representative, and you manage to get millions of dollars for your constituents, you're considered a hero. Uh, You get reelected and you brag about the fact that you were good for your constituents. He said, but if you went around the country burgling homes, picking pockets and uh, breaking into banks and took the money back to your neighborhood and gave it to your friends – you'd be called a thief and you would not be honored. Uh, you'd be put in jail and, and rightfully so. And then he asked the question, what's the difference between them? And I'm not, I don't want to get into the... I have to agree with Don. I don't think there's a big difference. There, there's some difference. Uh, but I, I do... I'm not a big fan of earmarks on the short-term impact. Exactly. I like yeah, your yeah. point about the long-term impact. But I, I want to ask a, a related question, which is this. Is it imaginable... That part of our challenge as a body politic in the United States today stems from the fact that what was once considered honorable is now considered dishonorable and what was once considered dishonorable is now considered honorable. So what I mean by that is there must have been a time – maybe not. Maybe I'm naive. Maybe I'm romantic. Maybe there was a time in America when – to bring home pork for your constituents was considered somewhat inappropriate the mechanisms may or may not have been there in the past i think not or they were smaller and so it's a str- it's a cultural change i think there there was once a time and there are a handful of people in congress who still feel this way but it's a very it's one handful not two you know who would say well i could have voted for this and got got us that bridge but that would be wrong it's true you can but it's wrong and it, it seems to me that, in a society, the more stuff that you don 't do because it 's wrong as opposed to because you can 't the better off you are I mean, you really don 't want to rely on legislation only as a way to stop people. so a lot of people want to say oh, we've got to solve this here mark let's let 's forget your deeper point about mm-hmm. sure. uh, the long term incentives in the parties let 's just consider it a form of of just redistribution from one part of the country to another that there are these people who are skilled at gaming the system politically. They've been there a long time. They either have more influence because of that or they know the rules better and they're able to use those that influence and, and knowledge to channel resources to a, this, a small group of people known as their constituents. Why wouldn't you be ashamed of that? And Surely there was a time when people might have been ashamed of that and instead now they're considered, quote, good politicians. Uh, now, having said that, uh, Ben Nelson in Nebraska was was embarrassed by the fact that he cut a deal for his constituents to get his vote on health care. I think uh, Senator Landrieu of Louisiana had some embarrassment, but they've decided to live with that Evidently, they may, they may feel otherwise down the road, but at the time it seemed like a good idea to them. Any thoughts on those issues? And so she drawn anything you observed in the time in the Senate?
1: Well – uh, of course, I was in the Senate in a time when uh, pork was king. Uh, most of the pork that I saw was tax-related pork. Um, and they were of the same size as normal pork projects. We're talking about $2 million tax cuts for this little group or $3 million tax cuts for that little group, groups that I won't name. So, um, But uh, you you, know, you can just look through the Senate Finance Committee's legislation, the bills that come out of their committee, and you'll see many small little tax breaks that you probably can imagine are just designed to target... a. Couple of particular groups, and then, but they're in the, they're often in the range of tens of millions of dollars, um, occasionally billion dollars uh, benefits. I do sense that this has gone on for a long time. I mean, the United States was building canals with federal funding. I'm guessing that there were political debates over that. I'm guessing there were and that was going on in the 19th century. I'm guessing that the uh, where railroads went in the 19th century was pretty politicized. I don't know much about the history of. Um, earmarks, and when it became socially acceptable to do that. It seems as though it is a signal that voters look to as a sign that their politician it has some skill. Um, that's, if I was writing down some heavily mathematical model of political economy, um, I would, that's, the, that's what I'd model it as. I'd say, boy, politicians have to show their voters that they have some skill. Voters aren't paying that much attention to politics, but they can see a new bridge with a big sign that says... Uh, your tax dollars your at tax work, dollars yeah. at work yes well, of course they're
0: not yours they're other people's yeah. tax
1: dollars at work. <laughs> you're <laughs> so good at taking somebody <laughs> else's tax dollars and bringing it, them here that's what
0: it should say your neighbor's tax dollars or your, your distant neighbor's tax dollars at that work that's what the exactly. sign should exactly yes. um, it reminds me of, it, of the uh, TARP bill and the TARP bill which was a $700 billion bill it had failed the first time
1: mm-hmm.
0: the second time it passed in the meanwhile, we were told it was – we're on the edge of a cliff, apocalypse, nuclear, economic war. We had to have it uh, and, and and it passed. And, you know, I don't know if I've mentioned it on this program before but hidden away in that very, 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 very long bill, hundreds if not thousands of pages, was a paragraph or two, maybe a page about uh, green energy and who's – Not in favor of green energy. I mean, it's a wonderful thing. Exactly. So it turned out it was a subsidy for uh, electric uh, car, uh, cars that were using some form of electric power. And it just turned out that it only applied to one car, (laughs) the Volt, uh, the Chevy Volt. And the way they did that is it it applied to a certain type of electric battery. And it turns out there were than one company working on electric batteries, but it turns out the Volt, uh, which we did a podcast on with Jonathan Roush. The Volt had its own unique battery,
1: so that's what the subsidy was for. On Capitol Hill, we call that a rifle shot.
0: A rifle? Oh, that's very nice, because it's, it's, um, it's focused. Targeted for yeah. just, yes.
1: So, Usually, rifle shots are considered shameful.
0: Well, that's the interesting thing, because they didn't say that. They mm-hmm. could have said, mm-hmm. we want to help the Chevy Volt. So let's subsidize it. It's not a trivial subsidy, I think. Mm-hmm. If I remember, it's $5,000 it's got some range to it, but it, it, there's some variation. But I think it's five, roughly $5,000 per car. It's a lot of money. Um, in a car that might be twenty-five to $35,000 is a huge subsidy. And so that rifle shot was done quietly. The, the, so even though you can come home and brag to your constituents, it is considered somewhat gauche to do it out in the open, right? Mm-hmm. Reminds me of steroids, right? So steroids were kind of – tolerated in the culture of baseball they they before they were banned they were they were considered okay by some players a form of, of of an edge that was considered okay but not exactly because no one proudly said I'm a steroid user they all hid it they all wanted it to be hidden they wanted people to think that their physiques and skills were natural but uh, they used it anyway, and there was a certain tolerance for it. So it seems to me that that earmarking in pork is something like that steroid debate. There's a a tolerance for it within the culture, but not too much because they don't brag about it in the literal way. They don't. They try to do it quietly.
1: Yeah. The uh, yes, yeah, steroids as the earmarks of uh, the sporting world. You're right.
0: So the king of pork is like the Sultan of Swat. Um, mm-hmm. Let's let's move on. Sure. Uh, I want to get to your productivity. One. I don't know if that was the one you wanted to do next. I, c-
1: I can do that next? Let's or, do that one next. Okay. Sure. Um, I've had a few tweets over the last um, few months that uh, re- mention organizational capital. Arnold Kling has actually um, uh, made it into a theme on his blog now. Uh, EconLog, our sister, in- sister uh, site. Exactly. And um, so I think that... Uh, what is organizational capital? Organizational capital is... It's basically the ideas and the habits of work that people build at work. So, you know, economists, we all know what uh, and people in, and citizens all know what physical capital is—the machines and equipment that help you do do your job. But a lot of what businesses build is not um, not physical capital, but they build cultures. They build good cultures. They build good patterns and processes. They build good databases. Um, they have good R um, and D labs and workers who are trained to operate them. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of what we do at work nowadays is not actually either producing capital, physical capital, or even producing the final output, like consumer goods. A lot of what we're doing at work is we're just building patterns and processes. So I um, in speaking with Arnold about this once, he noted that when he worked at, uh, at Fannie Mae, uh, he said – Freddie Mac, Freddie Mac, excuse me. Um, when he worked at Freddie Mac, almost none of the work that he did – people at Freddie Mac didn't spend their time actually processing loan applications – Right. Um, What they did was they built computer programs that would take care of all this stuff automatically. Uh, People who work at Citibank, uh, another semi-private enterprise in the United (laughs) States. Um, Quasi-private. Faux-private, I like to call it. F-A-U-X. (laughs) Faux-private, yeah. Um, These folks, they spend – the highest paid people there are building patterns. They're writing computer programs or they're approving computer programs that make decisions about which checks to clear and which checks to not clear about what interest rates to offer. Um, Engineers at um, an auto company, um, they're not... It it doesn't take that many people to build a car. Um, What it does is it takes a lot of people to design the car in advance and to decide, okay, how much money is going to go into safety? How many... uh, How much... What's the thickness of the sheet metal? What kind of plastic are we going to use? All this design. You're basically building people. um, you're, You're... The job of a corporation is to create the kind of workers... Who can actually get a process moving? It takes very few folks to actually make the final product. Um, I thought of you.
0: Yeah, well, I don't want to stop you there. Go ahead. I was going to interrupt,
1: but go ahead. You thought of me. Go ahead. I thought of you when I was in San Francisco over the weekend. (laughs) Yeah. Because I um, uh, saw, uh, I watched a little video about a uh, fortune cookie factory uh, that's actually in uh, San Francisco, in Chinatown there. And this factory uh, manages to crank out 10,000, I believe, fortune cookies a day with exactly two workers. Yeah. So um, I thought of that in light of your, your references in uh, Price of Everything about how, how few people it takes to run an, an egg an, uh, right. egg factory.
0: An egg processing facility. Yeah. So I want to sit with cars, though, for a minute, because I think, although I, I would have loved to have seen that video, because the whole idea of... of People-free production.
1: Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. I mean, part of this is a it, it sounds like you're just playing a word game here. I mean, when you say that that there's um, no people involved in making a car, well, come on, they're in the design, they're in the. You're calling that you know that they're not really doing anything, but of course they are. And yet, it makes a difference. And we're going to get to that in a sec. So, but but I want to I want to just rhapsodize for a him about a car factory. If you've never been to a car factory. You should go. It's yes, you, you should. You, you can see it sometimes in an ad. That they capture some of the magic of it. But, but as Garrett says, you know, modern production has very few people in the actual production process, and that is important. And we're going to get to that. But just the the magic of that. Uh, what you have in a modern modern car factory, and this is a car factory. I was in a Ford plant in Kansas City, oh, uh, in the mid '90s was was the last time I was in a car factory. And if you stand in the right part of the factory, which is the part where they're done, every 30 seconds, a brand new car just rolls off the line. And if you think about – you know, we, many of us here are fans of iPencil. The number of people who have to contribute to that process, either as the designers of the car or the, the people who sourced the raw materials, but I like to think about the people who designed the robots – that allowed the car to be produced every 30 seconds without very many people actually touching the car. Um, it, it's an extraordinary thing the way we have embodied knowledge within capital mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and within the processes that that allowed this to happen with such effectiveness uh, and at so little cost relative to the past. So why is that relevant? Why is it relevant and I'm told there are factories that have no people, mm-hmm. uh, that and that it's all mechanized. There's basically a switch. Somebody literally turns on the factory and it starts to work. And the advantage of that is you don't have to have lights or heat or uh, it can be done in the dark and it can be really cold. Uh, so you save more money and therefore the costs of or resources used to produce it goes down even more. So why is that important? It's, it's, it's interesting to observe that change. It wasn't true 100 years ago or 50 years ago. 50 and 100 years ago, there were people actually making the stuff, but not now. So why is that relevant?
1: I think it's really relevant right now for explaining um, the recession and the recovery. So in in this recession, as with the last couple, um, we have seen that the productivity of workers, according to official statistics, uh, is going up during recessions. Now, to a lot of people, to the person on the street, that's supposedly common sense, right, that during a recession is when... The, uh, the boss comes and tells all the workers, hey, I'm going to make you work harder. Right.
0: That's what most people think I think it means. Yes. Yeah.
1: And there's certainly some of that going on uh, on some level. I mean bosses, bosses do love to squeeze the last bit of uh, blood out of a stone. Um, but the thing And is in they, a recession, it's, it's easier to because otherwise you quit. <laughs> yes. I mean this was a point that even Marx made about the reserve army of the unemployed, that there's this uh, – the boss can always point to the unemployed workers out on the street and say, hey, all those people want your job. Um, so you better work harder for less money. Um but uh, I think the the puzzle is is that this w- it wasn 't always this way, and for the last three recessions it 's been this way, but before then it was not the actually there 's a whole school of economic thought built around this fact that productivity tends to go up during booms and go down during recessions um it 's known as real business cycle theory uh, and Ed Prescott and Finn Kidlin won a Nobel Prize partly for inventing this theory uh, they they, so um, let's talk about that theory first. So sure. this is pro-cyclical will be the formal name for it. But pro-cyclical productivity, yes. So, so they noticed the fact, which economists didn't really dispute, that productivity was higher during booms and lower during recessions. In the and, past. In the past. So they came up with this uh, model right around 1980. And what they did is they said, well, let's, let's see if we can explain that by assuming – or believing that it's the productivity that is following its own path, that there's some times when we have a lot of great ideas, and there's some times when we just don't have that many good ideas. Maybe the, maybe the good idea times are when there's a lot of innovations, or when government regulation is supportive, and maybe the bad times are when the, uh, there's bad government regulations, or people aren't as innovative. Uh, maybe that's oil prices. Animal spirits. It could be animal spirits as well. Um, some, theories, some theories build around that. Um, It could be that oil prices, when oil prices are low, it's really cheap to bring in that cheap input from overseas. And when oil prices are high, uh, it's expensive to bring in that input from overseas, so we don't make as much. So there's a lot of stories for why productivity by itself might change over time. And what Kidlin and Prescott did is they said, we think we can explain everything else that goes on in a business cycle, or at least almost everything else, just with... Just by believing that productivity is going up and going down because of changes in government regulation, changes in tax rates, changes in oil prices, things like that. We think that can be the driver of the business cycle. So the idea would be then if, if people are being extra innovative, then
0: there's expansion. The economy's growing faster. There's new job opportunities.
1: Unemployment goes down. Exactly. And vice versa. The, 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 the way of boiling it down into an aphorism is that you make hay while the sun shines. Yeah. Um, you don't make, uh, the reason you don't make hay when the sun is not shining is because, uh, when the sun's not shining, it's going to be kind of damp and kind of mildewy outside and your hay, when you bale it, will actually get mildew and maybe mold and will be worthless. Better to wait. You better wait. And when, you, and so what it means is you put in more hours of work when productivity's high and you put in less hours of work when productivity is low. And it's self-reinforcing. It's, it. yes, exactly. And so Kidlin and Prescott noted that, um, people that unemployment would tend to go down, when productivity is high, and unemployment would tend to go uh, up when productivity is low. That was their story. And uh, they're able to explain why wages are high during booms. They're able to explain why investment is high during booms. They're able to explain why, again, productivity is pro-cyclical. So, um, it's but. A, but the problem is, is that their model was true until it wasn't. Mm. So um, the last three recessions, we've had the opposite happen. So this would be 91- Yes,
0: 2001 and, and the, current, the one. current one.
1: So um, in the last three recessions, uh, we've returned to the land of common sense, where it looks like on paper bosses are making their people work harder during recessions, and productivity is higher during recessions than during the boom years. So, so after decades of common sense being false, finally common sense is becoming true. So to a lot of economists, it doesn't seem likely that businesses have all of a sudden decided to be greedy, that in the old days they were, they were deciding... <laughs> To uh, lay off workers during the recession and, oh, we don't want to work them too hard. Unemployment rates are so high, we don't want to add to their misery. That wasn't what was going on in the old days. Um, so what could have changed? It's not that bosses went from being mean nice to being mean. Something else has probably happened. And I think it goes to this idea that organizational capital matters a lot more than it used to. It takes very few workers nowadays to actually produce the product. So when businesses are engaged in layoffs they might be laying off a lot of the people who would be engaging in this innovation, people who would be engaging in organizational capital building. Um, Businesses don't know what their future is going to be like. There's a lot of uncertainty about what products are going to be demanded, what products are going to be legal in a lot of industries, especially in the financial services industry. So now is not a good time to invest in new production processes. And so you keep around the workers who just produce the final product. You have the five workers at the assembly line cranking out the Ford's. But you lay off some and of the Of course, it's really, it's really more than five. Exactly. You, but, but people relate to the actual production. Mm-hmm. You're,
0: you're gonna, they're going to be relatively uh, unresponsive. That number is going to be relatively unresponsive to swings. Mm-hmm. Is that the claim?
1: That's the claim, is that the number of people engaged in actual actually making the final product. Um, so McDonald's is probably keeping just as many people on their shifts at a lot of restaurants on average. They're not changing that too much. But maybe the people that they have working at their hamburger university coming up with new products, maybe they've cut back on that. Um, and so then, measured productivity, which we need to talk about, mm-hmm. because
0: in everyday language, when we think about productivity, we think, how skilled are you? Right? That's what we think of productivity. Yes. So if, if I get more productive, I can make more than I made before in a particular amount of time. But that isn't exactly what productivity is it's not literally a worker's level of output and some kind of um you know how many uh, shirts how many sweaters can you knit in in a day mm-hmm. it's an aggregate number that's gathered by looking at total output divided by some measure of of labor mm-hmm. it might be the number of workers it might be the number of hours worked but if it's number of workers which is the crudest measure that that's usually used You're making the point that the number of workers could go down a lot, the denominator, without affecting the output very much. So measured productivity would go through the roof during a recession because most of the people who have been laid off aren't aren't the ones
1: making the stuff. Exactly. The people actually working at the retail end, the people actually working in the final stage of production of getting the products out the door, making sure the rice a gets into the boxes, that's a small number of people compared to what most of us do. What most of us are doing in our jobs nowadays is we're sitting in cubicles. We're helping the production process move along, whether we're whether it's by making sure that people get paid, uh, making sure that taxes get done, making sure that stuff gets uh, that innovation occurs, most jobs nowadays are cubicle jobs, not final production jobs. You can lay off a lot of those people and still keep moving product out the door for a couple of years and then of course the flip side of that is you can't do that in construction
0: so if you're going if you're going to be building half as many houses as you built before, you're going to have a lot fewer workers in building houses, and about 22.6% of the job reductions since the peak of the recession in 2007, December, are construction workers. So that's going to be hammered.
1: Yeah. So So one industry that's taken a huge hit in final production, construction, is one where you needed workers to do every step of the way, production every step of the way.
0: And so, did we? Did we read your Twitter on this? Your tweet on this particular one? I don't know if
1: we. Uh, or did we see. just start talking about productivity here? I don't remember. We <laughs> just. I actually haven't found this one on here. It's it's so old now. Um. No, I. Okay. Well, no. we'll
0: we'll try to track it down in the meanwhile. Okay. So we're almost out of time. We got about five minutes left. Anything else? Uh, give me something else fun to close us out with.
1: Okay. Um, well. So the supply siders are pretty popular in certain um, free market circles, and they've made a lot of good points um, that uh, people do respond to tax changes. Um, but uh, I think that sometimes uh, their models have been a little bit too optimistic. They believe that, that people respond a lot to small changes in tax increases. Um, and, uh, you know, one prediction you could make if you were a real honest, honest supply sider, honest to good supply sider. Are you, are you one? Um, no. Okay. I would predict that um, 2010 should be a massive boom year, at least for America's rich, because by all accounts, the taxes tax rates are going to be going through the roof in 2011 for um, for uh, people making over $100,000 or $200,000 a year. And if I were a supply-sider and I thought that that was the primary thing driving our economy, that changes in tax rates have huge impacts on people's uh, behavior in the, and that it's that it's a big, big effect, like they say, then 2010 should be a massive year for work by the rich. Uh, I think it's not going to... 2010 be. compared to 2011. Compared to 2011, yes. So this is a prediction that we can make pretty clearly, I think. So you know, people can listen to this after 2011's over and see whether the uh, s- uh, labor supply by the richest 1% or 2 or 3% of Americans has shot up a- in 2011. Uh, In 2010. A shot shot, um, up in 2010 compared to 2011. So people should make hay while the sun shines. Um, I I certainly believe that's true in a lot of parts of economics. Supply-siders believe it's extra true when it comes to changes in tax rates. So 2010, boom year if the supply-siders are right. That's another one of my tweets. And uh, you think they're going to be wrong? I think they're going to be wrong on this. I think that – Labor supply does respond to tax rates. Um, I don't think it's nearly as big as, uh, as they'd like to think. Uh, I think it's time to focus on a lot of other parts of the economy um, when thinking about why boom and bust cycles happen. So I hope this is a bit of a chastening moment. Not that they have to totally go back to the showers and you know, start from scratch again, but uh, integrate more ideas into your into your worldview.
0: Yeah, I think that's, uh, that may be true. I think uh, – although I do think you know, tax rates are important. Yes, for labor supply, they're not, maybe not as important as supply siders think they are. It's a it's an empirical question.
1: It is an empirical question. Yeah.
0: Uh, you know, you and I started. We were, you and I about a, two weeks ago decided this podcast. We had talked about looking at tax cuts and um, whether there was a correlation between tax cuts and revenue. Mm-hmm. Uh, tax increases and and government spend, excuse me, not revenue, government spending. Mm-hmm. Whether you know Milton Friedman said he'd never been a tax cut he didn't like, and I think his main reason was better to move in that direction than the other. And it the the, the less money that they have to play with, the less damage that they'll do. And I, even though we only have about th- uh, maybe five minutes, do you want to say something about that? Because it's such an interesting question. It is
1: this. Um, this often goes by the name of starve of the beast. Yeah. That um, if we cut taxes, that as, as Friedman put it, he said his theory of politics, and this is the theory of politics, not of economics, that there was a politically acceptable deficit that politicians would run. And so if you take in less money, then they'll spend all the money they get in tax revenue plus the politically acceptable deficit. That's total government spending. So tax cuts pull down the amount of total government spending then in his view. Now, we have to
0: make a distinction, of course, between changes given that we just talked about supply side. We want to make a distinction here between tax rates and tax revenue. Yes, yes. So we're, we're assuming that cuts in tax rates lead to less tax revenue, which is usually the case, holding everything else constant. Uh, that we're not in
1: the laffer, the downward part of the laffer curve. Yes, exactly. Which some countries certainly are. Which there are parts <coughs> of tax codes that put you on the wrong side of the laffer curve. But I'm, but Friedman's point was take tax cuts, even if it even if it loses your revenue. Um, because it'll, it'll, uh, help starve the beast. Um, it'll make the government have to get by with less. And that's a, that, like I said, that's a theory of politics. We've had decades of experience with this now. Um, being able to, and we can look back at the data, um, and we can check and see. You can eyeball it yourself just looking at, uh, numbers on a website like the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis and see what our t- revenues and spending have been like over the last few decades. Uh, but a couple of economists have looked at it a little more formally. Um, Christina Romer and her husband uh, David, who uh, and Christina works in the Council of Economic Advisors. she runs that for the president now, has looked at. But this it, was before. This is before she took that position. Um, she wrote one paper using one statistical method, um, and William Niskanen of the Cato Institute. He tried another statistical method, and they both came to roughly the same conclusion, which is they found that um, when taxes are cut today, it looks like spending might be increasing in the future, not decreasing. Um, the way the Romers put it in their paper was, the one thing that a tax cut surely predicts is a future tax increase. That's the one thing they're best at predicting. It's, uh, it may also predict future spending hikes. Um, Niskanen, Niskanen looks at it a different, uh, the data, different way and comes to the same conclusion. When he sees taxes diving as a percentage of GDP, even when he controls for kind of how the business cycle's going... He sees that there's basically a, a spending party. Um, and uh, I think uh, William Gale of Brookings has, a, has a, a sort of an informal theory of this, which is that politicians have two ways of looking at the world. They are either, as, as I put it, they're either in their Puritan mode or they're in their partier mode. And when they're in their Puritan mode, they say, okay, uh, e- one party says to the other, one political party says to the other, well, if I'm not going to get my tax cut, then you can't have your spending hike. And the other party says the same thing. Well, if I can't have my spending hike, you can't have your tax cut. So they basically restrain each other. Um, and it's a sort of self-control mode, like when you're in a diet. You know, the times when you're dieting are probably the times when you're exercising more, too. Um, the other alternative is you, the partier mode. You, you loosen your belt. You say, well, if, I'm getting, if that guy's getting his tax cut, then I'm getting my spending hike.
0: If, I, it, if I go for a run then I can have an ice cream Sunday.
1: Exactly, <laughs> yeah. So the, so the part of your mode is basically you just, you just let go. You just let go. And um, uh, that seems to kind of match the U.S. data. I don't think anything's definitive on this. I tried running some numbers on this myself, and, and I kind of got a muddle um, uh, of statistical results. But I think it's time for those of us who believe in smaller limited government like I do to um, to revisit this idea that tax cuts are the way to control government spending. We may be instead encouraging uh, Congress to party more on the spending side. Yeah, I, I wish Milton
0: were alive to defend himself. But yes, I, I do too. But I think uh, the bottom line is clear that we haven't made much impact on the size of government. Um, mm-hmm. Those of us who'd like it smaller are losing. Mm-hmm. It gets mm-hmm. bigger. Uh, it gets bigger in times of – Threats to national defense, it gets uh, to national security, it gets bigger in economic downturns, it gets bigger during economic boom times, mm-hmm. uh, it just gets bigger. So uh, I think we ought to be thinking about how to move in the opposite direction. Um, and um, I'm not sure many people agree with us. Makes me worry. Yeah. Um, I think the best thing about what's going on right now is that. We've gotten to a point where actually people, I think, are a little more worried than they used to be.
1: Yes, the uh, the combination of the baby boomers heading toward retirement and the fact that people just saw a trillion and a half go out the window without <laughs> politicians making too big of a deal about it.
0: Yeah,
1: um, those are the kind of things that get you thinking. Yeah, the last ten years were the times we were supposed to be getting our fiscal house in order, <laughs> getting ready for the baby boomers. Yeah, um, that's me, by the way. Yeah, not you. But,
0: uh, Garrett's younger than I am. Uh, my guest today has been Garrett Jones of George Mason University. Garrett, who uh, twitters as Garrett Jones, one R, two Ts, Jones as it's normally spelled. Thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast